Good evening, I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. 28 prematurely born babies evacuated from Gaza's biggest hospital were taken to Egypt for urgent treatment on Monday. The newborns have been in North Gaza's El Shifa hospital after their incubators were knocked out during Israel's military assault on Gaza City. And Israel's war on hospitals has shifted to the Jakarta-funded Indonesian hospital encircled by Israeli tanks. Twelve are reported to have died from gunfire. The Israeli tanks shelled the Indonesian hospitals with mortar shells. As a result, dozens were killed from among the patients and wounded. The Israeli tanks continued to lay siege around the hospital. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he's never seen anything like the violence unfolding against civilians in Gaza. We are witnessing a killing of civilians that is unparalleled and unprecedented in any conflict since I am Secretary General. The Gaza Health Ministry reports more than 5,600 children have been killed in Gaza, 13,000 people in total, although the Health Ministry says it can no longer update casualty totals as most communications have been cut. And in related news, a deal to release some of the more than 240 hostages seized by Hamas on October 7th appears to be moving forward. President Biden was asked about it after he pardoned two turkeys at the White House on Monday. The exact outline of the deal remains unclear. Qatar's prime minister says only minor obstacles remain to the swap. Israeli media says between 50 and 100 women and children held on both sides would be freed. There would also be a temporary ceasefire over several days. And in related news, in Israel, a war cabinet meeting turned chaotic as family members of hostages screamed at government ministers. Many of the hostage families were angered by a motion to institute the death penalty against Hamas fighters who were captured as prisoners of war, raising fear of possible retributions. And in world news, the United Nations released its annual emissions gap report today. Its main finding, the world is set to experience a 2.5 to 2.9 degree temperature rise by the end of the century, well above the 1.5 degrees limit necessary to avoid the worst effects of climate change. UN Chief Antonio Guterres. And those emissions are shattering temperature records. June, July, August, September, and October were all the hottest on record. The report was met by protests. Activists disrupted a GOP town hall in Des Moines, Iowa. You know, when you're... When, when, when you're... When, 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 when our children's future's on fire. You've got a beautiful son. These future's on fire. None of you guys care about our children's future. Another report released by Oxfam America laid the blame for the climate disaster on the richest 1%, whose personal habits, as well as financial investments, they claim, are behind most of the greenhouse gas emissions. Ashfaq Kalfan is Oxfam's Director of Climate Justice. We found that the globe's richest 1%, they pollute as much as the 5 billion people put together, the 5 billion lowest income people. Both these groups emit the same. The 1%, their emissions are from things like private jets, yachts, lavish lifestyles. Kalfan says billionaires like Oracle founder Joseph Ellison lead unsustainable lifestyles. Larry Ellison, for example, he's one of the richest people in America. He has 35 homes, super yacht, private jets. 
produces 9,000 tons of CO2 a year. The average person in America is it's about 15 tons. It's a lot more. The investments, his investments, are 15 times more polluting than his personal lifestyle. The report says the top 1% in America generates in one year the same amount of carbon as the poorest 50% does in 25 years. And this week is Thanksgiving, America's most popular and most controversial holiday. President Joe Biden took time today pardoning two turkeys named Liberty and Bell. I hereby pardon Liberty and Bell. All right. Congratulations, birds. The tradition of pardoning turkeys began with President George H.W. Bush in 1989. Some say the holiday promotes racist stereotypes of Native Americans and a falsification of history. But Americans seem to have put that behind them. Nearly 5 million will be flying across the country and back again for the holiday, nearly 7% more than last year. Paul Drienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with Ashfaq Kalvahan. We found that the globe's richest 1%, they pollute as much as the 5 billion people put together, the 5 billion lowest income people. Both these groups emit the same. The 1%, their emissions are from things like private jets, yachts, lavish lifestyles. If we're looking for a way to actually meet that gap and reduce the emissions quickly, fast enough, the 1% are the place it can be done. Luxury activities of the very, very rich? Yeah, it's a, it's a big part of it. Um, it's a big part of the total emissions. They have a lot more of impact on emissions is through their investments, through investing, investing in fossil fuels, in pushing the economy and decisions about the way we produce our food, the way we run our transport, all of those decisions are made in many cases by the 1% because they invest and advertise in high emission activities. It sort of tells a story that might be easier for the public to understand. Percentages and large numbers, is, for a lot of people, they sort of glaze over. It makes it real. It does make it a bit more concrete, yeah, to talk about their personal lifestyles. What is the worst? The yachts you mentioned. I've heard yachts are the worst. Yachts, private jets. Larry Ellison, for example, he's one of the richest people in America. Has 35 homes, a super yacht, private jets, produces 9,000 tons of CO2 a year. The average person in America is it's about 15 tons. It's a lot more. The investments, his investments, are 15 times more polluting than his personal lifestyle. It's a huge difference. And if I can tell you a bit about the United States itself, you might find this a bit surprising, but people in the lowest income, 50% of the United States, they've actually reduced their emissions over the past 30 years by about a fifth. Meanwhile, the top 1%, they've not reduced their emissions at all. You often hear about emissions and climate change. It's a woke thing. It's a cosmopolitan thing. But actually, <laughs> it's the richest who have not been reducing, whereas the lowest income people, they've been doing more than their fair share. A person in the top 1%, they emit 25 times as much carbon pollution as a person in the bottom percent. In what they emit in one year, a person in the bottom 50% my income emits over 25 years. It really shows that if you wanted to reduce emissions, you need to start at the top, not mm -hmm. the other way around. Is it something that's actually cool about the way the rest of us live that maybe the rich could learn from? The super rich, the 1% is the super rich. I mean, obviously the top 10% of Americans 
could do a lot more. Reducing emissions is a job for everybody. It's just that for some, there's a lot more they can do. The regular people, yeah, we can drive less, we can buy less, but to actually reduce your emissions to zero, you really need the transport system of a whole. Probably everybody needs subsidies to move to renewable energy, to get an electric car, for example, or to have more accessible public transport or to heat your homes. There's Many of those decisions are not really in our hands. There you need systemic change. The problem is with some of these systemic changes, you've got the super rich investing in fossil fuels, uh, in many cases opposing government action to get us off fossil fuels. Or we actually talk about Charles Koch, who has spent huge amounts of money funding disinformation, taking cases before the Supreme Court, such as the decision that stopped the clean power plan. We're calling on the government to be taxing the super rich very significantly so that those resources can be used to fund the just transition for everybody, taxing wealth, taxing income, taxing pollution. That's the primary thing that needs to be done. That is actually a solution that is good for the planet, but it's also fair because it means that the people who are mostly responsible for emissions are paying for cleaning it up. I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. An optimistic sign a temporary truce and hostage release is in the works in Gaza as a spokesperson for Hamas and Israel's prime minister agreed a deal is close. Although fighting on the ground continues to rage with Israeli forces claiming to have a refugee camp in northern Gaza surrounded. President Joe Biden said today a deal to release 200 hostages taken on October 7th was very near. My team has been in the region shuttling, shuttling uh, between capitals. We, uh, we're now very close, very close. Uh, we could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. In related news, the World Health Organization says it's appalled by an attack by Israel on the Indonesian hospital in Gaza that killed 12. It comes after bloody fighting surrounded El Sifra, the largest hospital in Gaza, where Israel claimed it had unearthed tunnels used by Hamas in the fighting. In an exchange between CNN's Christine Amanpour and former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, he told the astonished host Israel had built the tunnels for Hamas years before. So we held them, it was decades, many decades ago, probably five, de four decades ago, that we helped them to build these uh, bunkers in order to enable uh, more, more, uh, more space for the operation of the hospital. Okay, all right, well, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's sort of thrown me a little bit. In more news from the war, two journalists working for Beirut-based El Mayadeen news channel were killed by a guided missile attack from Israel. More than 50 reporters have been killed in the war, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Closer to home, a lawsuit by former New York Fire Chief Joseph Jardin revealed the existence of a so-called DMO list, meaning Deputy Mayor for Operations. Jardin, who has been questioned by the FBI in their investigations of the campaign of Mayor Eric Adams, says buildings on the list were jumped to the front of a long line to get necessary inspections by the fire department. The mayor denied the list existed today. First of all, I want very clear. I knew nothing of a list. You know, I knew nothing of a list. And so if ever I contacted the prior administration, anytime as borough president, anytime as state senator, it was to ask them to examine something. The mayor has admitted intervening on behalf of constituents and says he did nothing wrong. 
I constantly reach out to administrations on every level to say constituency needs must be resolved. And any elected official that's not doing that is not doing their job. According to published accounts, the Real Estate Board of New York, big donors to Mayor Adams, requested special treatment, and the Turkish consulate, the focus of the FBI investigation, didn't even have a working fire system set up when it got a fire department inspection. In labor news, hundreds of home care workers and their supporters, calling themselves No More 24, have been protesting at City Hall, supporting a bill to plug a loophole allowing 24-hour shifts for caregivers in New York City, something that's not allowed anywhere else. No More 24! The bill was introduced last year by Manhattan City Council member Christopher Marty. What we're trying to do with Intro 175, the No More 24 Act, is to eliminate this inhumane practice. As I said, it only happens in New York City. It doesn't happen in Rochester and Long Island, and that's why we think the city legislation is necessary. But the measure is yet to make it to the floor of the council for a vote. Council Speaker Adrian Adams has the power, but supporters say she's been holding the bill back. Marty says there are powerful interests making money off of 24-hour shifts. And what we're experiencing is a lot of special interests, whether it's the insurance companies who are making a lot of money off this industry, uh, home care agencies really pushing back and really controlling what's mm -hmm. happening within the, the walls of City Hall. During hearings, many home health care workers testified about the effect the 24-hour shifts have had on their physical and mental health. Audrey Yui is with Youth Against Sweatshops. Think of like these like older immigrant women literally having to like carry patients all the time place to place. And Yui adds Council Speaker Adams is under the thumb of insurance companies and her inaction is destroying lives. Every night that she doesn't end it, another family is torn apart. Another worker is unable to sleep and suffering. And she knows this, but she chooses to keep pushing it back for no reason. Because who is going to vote against a bill to end this? Activists say the next No More 24 protest is scheduled for December 18th at City Hall. Paul DiRienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with Audrey Wee of Youth Against Sweatshops. Home care workers are forced by agencies to work 24-hour shifts straight around the clock, sometimes like three days in a row, five days in a row. It's very harmful for their bodies, for their health, can't see their families, they end up with like insomnia, physical injuries that debilitate them permanently, anxiety, depression, etc. In addition to that, they're only paid for 13 out of those 24 hours because of New York minimum wage exemption law. Half their wages are being stolen. This is very much an inhumane practice and basically modern day slavery trapped in their patient's home, essentially. We've had this bill that was introduced last year, the No More 24 bill, that would basically just end this practice. It would force it to become split shifts, like 12 hours, 12 hours, which is where it's practiced in other places, like upstate, for example. It's only New York City, which basically shows how it's like very racist practice, predominantly immigrant women of color, overwhelmingly, that work these jobs. Who's hiring Who them? Who hires Who's... them? You see the home care ads basically all over the city. We do cases with all of them, basically. So CPC, for example, is a very prominent one. They're in the nonprofit sector. They have a home care sector that like employs and does this work. So yeah, it's most of them, all of the ones in New York City do this. They collude with the insurance agencies and together they basically maintain this because they say that 
you're supposed to get five hours of uninterrupted sleep and three one-hour meal breaks. And that's why you're only compensated for 13 hours. And then if you don't get the meal break and don't get the continuous sleep, then you should be compensated for your night work. But essentially, no worker who does a 24-hour shift can get this because if a patient is like assigned 24-hour care, it means that they really need that care all around the clock. They cannot like take care of themselves and function. They need to be, for example, turned over in their bed multiple times in the night. If they're bedridden, they need to be carried to the bathroom, which is part of why it's such hard physical work. Think of like these like older immigrant women literally having to like, carry patients all the time place to place. So it's just impossible to basically meet those standards. The agencies do not compensate. They just basically refuse. They say that the workers are lying. They'll threaten them, say that, like, you're trying to steal from us. We're going to sue you. Speaker of the city council, you claim is holding this back, you think? Yeah, New York City is supposed to be seen as, like, progressive, union town, whatever. But it's, like, more of a horror show. It's, like, the only place that this practice is legal, very openly legal, you know. Um, The ads everywhere, all the city, so many home care ads. And Speaker of the City Council, she's the one person who can choose what gets put to a vote and what does not get put to a vote. And so she has continuously blocked this bill from being put up because she's got the insurance agencies in her ear. She's protecting their profits. She is basically using identity politics, hiding behind identity politics in order to continue. The first black Speaker of the City Council what is the point of that if she is going to just continue these racist, sexist practices, if she's going to be the person to uphold this to basically today, she could end this practice today. Every night that she doesn't end it, another family is torn apart, another worker is unable to sleep in suffering. And she knows this, but she chooses to keep pushing it back for no reason, because who is going to vote against a bill to end this? That it would just be crazy. When the bill was put up, we did have majority support. It could totally pass. The only thing you can do to make it not pass is to refuse to put it up. After rallies, she's even accused home care workers that they're being racist towards her or something because she is first black speaker of the city council, which is crazy, like, because she is the one enabling this violence to women of color, to black workers, to Asian workers. Is she getting money from these folks for a campaign? It must be so. From what we know is that, yeah, the insurance agencies were lobbying her So she's protecting their interests because they're making so much profit off of this by working 24-hour shifts, only paying for like half of that. It is extremely profitable. I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. A vehicle exploded at a checkpoint on the American side of the U.S.-Canada Peace Bridge at Niagara Falls Wednesday. Two people are reported dead, but little else is known about the incident. I've never seen anything like this. The car just exploded. Traffic was backed up as numerous bridge crossings between Canada and the United States were closed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told Parliament officials were taking this extraordinarily seriously. Is There are four border crossings that are right now closed. Rainbow Bridge, Whirlpool Bridge, Queenston Bridge and Peace Bridge. Uh, additional measures are being uh, contemplated and activated at all border crossings across the country. Uh, we are taking this extraordinarily seriously. The FBI is on the case, and Governor Kathy Hochul is on her way from Albany. In breaking news, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says there was no indication of a terrorist attack in the vehicle crash and explosion that left two people dead at a checkpoint on the American side of the U.S.-Canada bridge on Wednesday. 
And Israel and Hamas agreed on Wednesday to a humanitarian ceasefire of at least four days in Gaza and to trade 50 hostages held by Hamas for 150 Palestinian women and children held in Israel's jails. Israel has said the ceasefire could be extended if more hostages are released. Former Israeli hostage negotiator Daniel Levy was on Democracy Now! this morning. It would be so cool if after this we see a return of the kinds of assaults, bombings and losses on the Palestinian side in Gaza. And unfortunately, in their statements that they put out recognizing this initial deal, neither President Biden nor Secretary Blinken did that. The war began with an attack by Hamas on October 7th that killed 1,200, mostly civilians, while Israel's bombing of Gaza in retaliation has killed at least 14,000, 40% children. And the organization Crisis Action held a media briefing today, bringing together eight organizations involved in Gaza relief. Representatives of Doctors Without Borders, Amnesty International, and Save the Children were among the participants. They all agreed a four-day ceasefire was not nearly enough to deal with the devastation in Gaza. WBAI asked if the war was an attempt to drive Palestinians from Gaza permanently. Paul O'Brien is with Amnesty International. Facts on the ground are... Uh, 50% of buildings in the north at least are uh, uninhabitable. No signs of a serious intent on the part of the Israeli military to restore people to shelter with winter coming. Senior officials in the Israeli government quoted as saying they have no plans to return populations and worse than that. And Sama Hadid with the Norwegian Refugee Council says the evidence is pointing towards forced exile of millions of Palestinians. There is growing concern now that the statements made by senior Israeli officials point to an intent on mass deportations of the Palestinian civilian population. Hadid adds there may be a price to pay for those Israeli officials calling for mass deportation. We consider that the evacuation orders uh, given by Israel amounted to forcible transfer of the population because they did not ensure guarantees of safety, of return, of adequate humanitarian assistance to the population, which would amount to a war crime. And in related news, the United States is treating a reported plot to kill a sick separatist on American soil with utmost seriousness. The White House says it's raising the issue with the Indian government at the most senior levels. The Financial Times reported, citing unnamed sources, that the United States had issued a warning to India over concerns the government in New Delhi was involved. And 60 years ago today, an assassin's bullet snuffed out the life of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. The government suspect in the shooting was Lee Harvey Oswald, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran who claimed to be a communist. But confusion at the scene of the shooting quickly sowed doubt on the government's narrative. Several years later, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and claimed he had photos of CIA agents dressed as tramps. Here are the pictures of five of them being arrested and they've never oh. been shown before. Well, I don't know. Several what this of these is. men have been connected by our office with the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States government. The probability is that this is why Officer Tippett was killed. Is this speculation positively? And I want to identify it as that. 
Congressional hearings in the 1970s raised more doubts on the official story. Scores of books and two Hollywood movies about the assassination have been produced. Paul DiRienzo, New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo with these headlines. A brief humanitarian ceasefire in Israel's war against Gaza will start Friday morning, according to Qatar's foreign ministry. The beginning of the pause will be 7 a.m. Friday, the 24th of November, and it will last, of course, as agreed, for four uh, days. And uh, the first uh, patch of civilians to, uh, to be released from Gaza will be around 4 p.m. of the same day. Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza continues in the run-up to the ceasefire. Israeli forces have evicted patients and doctors from the Indonesian hospital, where more than a dozen were killed in a bomb attack. It's been 48 days of brutal attacks since Hamas fighters broke through a security fence on October 7th, seizing more than 200 hostages and killing about 1,200 Israeli soldiers and civilians. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, more than 14,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 5,840 children. More than 30,000 have been injured. Another 260 have been killed on the West Bank. 205 medical personnel have also died in the bombings. The Qatar spokesperson says a longer ceasefire is being discussed. Our aim is for this deal to end with a lasting truth. Right now, of course, the confines of this deal are these four days that are subject to a second phase and, uh, you know, following phases of expanding the pause through uh, the formula of uh, getting more hostages uh, out and therefore getting more time for, uh, for the pause. We are hoping that, that that momentum will carry and that we would find this would open the door for further and more uh, deep negotiations towards an end to, uh, to this uh, violence. According to the Gaza media office, more than 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced by the fighting. And today is Thanksgiving in the United States, when millions enjoy family time, football, and a hearty meal. In New York City, it's the famous Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Today, a group calling itself Writers Against the War on Gaza jumped into the parade, chanting, Free, Free Palestine. Free, Free Palestine! Free, Free Palestine! Free, Free Palestine! The group's statement claims there'll be no giving thanks until Palestine is free. And in New York, another deadline to file claims under the state's Adult Survivors Act for those who say they survived sexual abuse. A summons was delivered to Mayor Eric Adams by a woman who says he sexually assaulted her in 1993. The mayor denied the charges. And uh, I could just emphatically state uh, that one, this never took place. And I do not recall ever meeting uh, the accuser. And it's just not who I am. And I would never do anything to harm someone. That is just my character. The suit wants $5 million in damages from the city and the Guardians, the black police officers organization. Over the past year, 2,500 people have filed under the Survivors Act, mostly against government entities. And three Palestinian rights groups have filed a lawsuit with the International Criminal Court urging an investigation of Israel for apartheid and genocide and issue arrest warrants for Israeli leaders. While the ICC opened a case, many Palestinian activists say the court's response has been weak. Journalist Sam Husseini, often heard on WBAI, says there's a better alternative to hold Israel accountable. The other way to go is the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court, which has been much more even-handed in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Any country virtually can make a move to apply the Genocide Convention and bring a court case before the International Court of Justice.
Husseini says the definition of genocide is forcible removal of people from their homes, and he points to statements made by Israeli officials. The remarkable thing about the current attack on Gaza is that you have numerous statements by Israeli political and military officials basically saying that they want to do that. No water, no electricity, no food. He adds, that's genocide. Israel has regularly bombed and pummeled Gaza. They call it mowing the lawn, basically an ethnic cleansing campaign to bomb and drive the Palestinian people out of their homes. Journalist Sam Husseini. And finally, Joan Hara, the wife of Chilean folk singer Victor Hara, died earlier this month. Her husband, a popular balladeer and supporter of Chile's president, Salvador Allende, was murdered during a coup that killed Allende and at least 30,000 Chileans in 1973. The military officer who killed her husband was arrested in Florida last month and faces extradition to Chile. Joan Hara was 96. Paul Durienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with Sam Husseini on genocide. The biggest issue with showing that something is genocidal is intent. There's an actual definition of genocide to attempt to get rid of a group in whole or in part that's laid out in the Genocide Convention. The remarkable thing about the current attack on Gaza is that you have numerous statements by Israeli political and military officials basically saying that they want to do that. No water, no electricity, no food. Such statements from the highest level officials there. That's very rare. Do you think that's because of the history of the Jewish people in the Holocaust that they feel they have a moral right to say that and to uh, dissuade people from countering it? It's because Israel has been given so many green lights by the United States that they feel like they can get away with anything. Israel has regularly bombed and pummeled Gaza. They call it mowing the lawn. It's done so frequently, and this by far is the biggest attack, and it's basically an ethnic cleansing campaign to bomb and drive the Palestinian people out of their homes, as happened in 1948. There's a silver lining to all of this, because the Genocide Convention can be applied. A lot of people are trying to remedy this by going to the International Criminal Court, but the International Criminal Court has largely done the bidding of the United States even though the U.S. isn't a signatory to it. It's gone after African despots, and it started going after Putin, but it has not done anything in terms of the U.S. for its various invasions or now with Israel. The other way to go is the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court, which has been much more even-handed in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A country, any country virtually can make a move to apply the genocide convention and bring a court case before the international court of justice this gives activists a great opportunity to urge countries to do that there are many countries have said that what israel is doing is genocide the leaders of brazil the leaders of south africa uh uh Colombia. You've had ambassadors withdrawn very strong statements from Algeria, from Bolivia, and others. Those countries should step up now and should apply the Genocide Convention to try to resolve this conflict and bring Israel's attacks to a stop using a legal process.
How would that work? Mm -hmm. Because some of the people there anyway, some of the leaders in the government there are uh, calling almost gleefully for uh, this to be an excuse to throw the Palestinians out of Gaza. How do you get them to obey the law, even if a court... Fair question. If the International Court of Justice were to give a favorable emergency ruling, which seems quite possible, it would get referred to the UN in such a process that would put the U.S. and Israel on the defensive. And it would also put additional pressure on the International Criminal Court to finally act. And it could help break the logjam of the U.S. veto at the Security Council. You could have the General Assembly try to rally to assert its authority using something called Uniting for Peace, which the General Assembly has been very reluctant to do, but the time has come for that. This also gives legal recourse or help for processes like universal jurisdiction, like Spain tried to use on Pinochet. Getting an emergency ruling from the International Court of Justice could open up a number of avenues which would put Israeli officials eventually in legal jeopardy. They understand that. Was he actually arrested or he was threatened with arrest? He was in London at one point and the Spanish government was trying to get him extradited from London to Spain. So that it was a big legal standoff. So you could have all kinds of things like that being triggered once you have a ruling like this, like from the International mm -hmm. Court of Justice, that genocide has taken place. What the International Court of Justice would do is make a finding, Israel has committed genocide here. And that will have a ripple effect in terms of legal consequences that could directly target Israeli officials and potentially U.S. officials. Who could so, bring this um, action? Virtually any country could bring this forward before the International Court of Justice. Brazil, South Africa, Bolivia, Colombia, Iran could do so, Syria could do so, virtually any country. The only countries that can't quite do it are countries that have a reservation on the part of the treaty that says the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction over it. And there are just a handful of countries that fit into that. The U.S. has a reservation on that, for example. Israel doesn't. That makes Israel vulnerable on this. Venezuela has a reservation on that particular paragraph of the Genocide Convention. So if Venezuela wanted to do this, they would have to withdraw that objection to that paragraph before they could invoke it against Israel. They, they could do so right away, but it would have to be a legal process. Are there any countries that have begun this process at all? They have not yet begun it. I believe that they are currently considering it. Several countries have put forward the mechanisms in terms of the International Criminal Court. But the International Criminal Court, as I indicated before, has been doing the bidding of the United States. The current prosecutor there, a British barrister named Khan, doesn't seem inclined. He, he, it looks like he's dragging his heels again, as they've done before, will you know, say that they're looking into it and eventually do nothing. I think that these countries, I think, have done that in good faith, have gone to the International Criminal Court, and it needs to dawn on them that that is likely not going to do anything by itself, that they also need to go to the International Court of Justice, and they need to apply that. 
is there a statute of limitations on all of this? Is this something that could outlast this conflict? Yeah, it could be done at a later date, but not as effectively, because what's currently possible is an emergency process, because this is ongoing. And because even if you don't believe that genocide is going on, the treaty actually says it obligates the signers to punish and to prevent genocide. So even if you think that a genocide might be happening and you're a signatory to this treaty, you really have an obligation to move and to say, hold on, I think a genocide is happening here. We need to have a legal process to make sure that this isn't happening. I'm Paul DiRienzo with these headlines. Ireland's Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, condemned anti-immigrant protesters who rampaged through central Dublin after three young children were stabbed on Thursday. The violence began after rumors circulated that a foreign national was responsible for the stabbings that occurred outside a school. Police have not released the nationality of the attacker. A five-year-old girl was in critical condition at a Dublin hospital, and a teacher's aide was in serious condition. A six-year-old girl continues to receive treatment for less serious injuries, and another child was discharged overnight. An African immigrant living in Dublin had this to say of the rioting. They want nothing more than to work and contribute to this country. And they don't want to cause any of this havoc that is going on right now. And the people that are saying, oh, immigrants are destroying Dublin. You're the ones destroying Dublin. Look at last night. Like, there's not one immigrant inside on the streets looting. The beginning of a four-day ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza saw the release of 24 hostages held captive by Hamas and 39 Palestinians freed by Israel. It was the first glimmer of hope that there might be an end to the 50-day war that's killed more than 14,000 Palestinians and displaced well over a million. Israelis filled so-called hostage square in downtown Tel Aviv to cheer their return, while President Joe Biden made the announcement Friday afternoon. Earlier this morning, 13 Israeli hostages were released, including an elderly woman, a grandmother, and mothers with their young children, some under the age of six years old. Separately, several Thai nationals and Filipino nationals were also kidnapped by Hamas on the 7th. They were released as well. Israel holds over 7,000 Palestinian prisoners in its jails. 2,000 are held without charges in administrative detention. Israel is one of the few countries in the world to allow imprisonment of children. A Palestinian woman was released to joyous screams from relatives. In a sign of growing unease among European nations, the Prime Minister of Belgium, Alexander de Croo, called for an end to the targeting of civilians. A military operation needs to respect international humanitarian law. The killing of civilians needs to stop now. Way too many people have died. The destruction of Gaza is unacceptable. We cannot accept that a society is being destroyed the way it is being destroyed. President Biden accused Hamas of launching its October 7th incursion to derail his plans for the region. But I believe one of the reasons why Hamas struck when they did was they knew that I was working very closely with the Saudis and others in the region to bring peace to the region by having recognition of Israel and Israel's right to exist. 
Biden has also been restating U.S. support for the so-called two-state solution that would divide the region into two separate states for Israelis and Palestinians. But writer and peace activist Richard Silverstein tells WBAI the two-state solution is dead on arrival. No Israeli politician endorses two-state solution. It's basically a chimera. It's something that doesn't exist, will never exist. Israel doesn't support two states. It rejects it utterly. And when Biden talks about two states, Blinken talks about two states, anybody talks about two states is lying to themselves and lying to the world. Silverstein adds Israel's intent is to drive Palestinians from Gaza permanently. Any Palestinian who leaves Gaza is not going to be allowed to come back. The U.S. claim that they oppose the ethnic cleansing in northern Gaza and that they oppose reducing the territory of Gaza with a buffer zone, which is what Israel is doing, they oppose ethnic cleansing is ridiculous because that's precisely what Israel is going to do. Since the war began, the United States has experienced a dramatic rise in anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim threats and violence. Silverstein says the toxic politics will continue as the Israel lobby continues to fund politicians who support Israel above peace. 27 billionaires with a B in the United States who are spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to support the Israel lobby and the political um, sort of toxicity that the Israel lobby introduces to American uh, democracy. In related news, Pope Francis has weighed in on the controversy. Ma qui siamo andati oltre le guerre. Questo non è guerra già. Questo è terrorismo. He says, this is not war, it's terrorism. Paul Durienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with Richard Silverstein. Anytime we lessen tensions uh, is a good thing, so uh, the hostage exchange is a good sign. Um, however, I think that the um, so-called uh, truce or, or, uh, or uh, humanitarian pause, however you want to call it, is, is uh, hanging by a thread. I think um, it's it's even being uh, violated by Israel, and Israel is accusing Hamas of violating it, so each side is kind of um, sniping at the other. And I don't think that's a good sign uh, for um, the length of this uh, thing, which is supposed to be, I believe, four or five days. And Israel has already said that after this uh, period ends that it's going to go back to fighting. So um, it's... Uh, it, 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 it's designed to um, release some hostages and give a couple of days to the Palestinians to prepare for the worst that's to come. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's significant that the first group of hostages that were released were mostly Thai and one Filipino as well as uh, a handful of uh, Israelis? Is there any significance to that? The Israelis want um, the Israelis back, obviously. It's, that's their priority. And uh, the Palestinians, of course, want the 150 Palestinian fighters that were released. Um, I think that for as far as Hamas is concerned, uh, the Western hostages, the dual nationals or the uh, foreign uh, nationals, are um, sort of goldmine for them because it uh, compels the West to continue to take some interest in um, in lessening uh, hostilities and motivates them to uh, try to engage with um, you know what's going on and hopefully stopping the bloodshed at some point with a more permanent ceasefire.
there's 7,000 Palestinians being held, 2,000, I think, in administrative detention, uh, people who were held, children. They were, I saw children being released. Uh, who were being released on the Palestinian side? They're releasing Palestinians who are not uh, guilty or not charged with killing Israelis. And I might add, they released a 23-year-old girl who was arrested at the age of 15, um, and she spent eight years in an Israeli prison. And I might add, under international law, it's illegal to detain children. It's illegal to incarcerate children. Uh, at any one time, there are usually 300 children in Israeli custody, Palestinian children in Israeli custody. So um, I think Israel is is releasing this sort of um, you know low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, prisoners who have uh, really committed any kind of a serious uh, crime in, in Israeli terms. And that's why they're releasing children. That's why they're releasing... Uh, uh, um, uh, they're releasing uh, the elderly uh, because they no longer really pose a threat or, or never were a threat. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. role in all of this, I was listening to the president's speech just a few moments ago. He, yet to listen towards the end, but I've heard this before, he said Hamas did this, they were about to clinch a deal with Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel. The interest of Hamas in doing what it did in the attack in southern Israel uh, has very little, in my opinion, to uh, what is going on with the Abraham Accords. I don't believe that they are a serious uh, enterprise. They're only going to help business interests in Israel and in the Gulf states, which are pr the primary members of the Abraham Accords. I think that for Hamas and the Palestinians in general, the Abraham Accords are very negative development, because it means that all of those states have abandoned the Palestinians, who used to be um, allies and supporters of the Palestinians. So the leaders of all these countries are corrupt anyway, and this is going to be a, boon, uh, a boondoggle for them uh, financially. Uh, but the citizens of these countries are totally opposed to normalizing with Israel um, and continue to support the Palestinians. So in that sense, I think Hamas sees the whole process of the Abraham Accords as a lessening of commitment to them. And, but I think the primary reason for the attack was that the Israelis were, these, uh, this fascist government had uh, gone wild in terms of uh, increasing the, uh, the murder and the violence against Palestinians. And this was a go-for-broke kind of activity on the part of Hamas, saying uh, we have nothing to lose, um, we're being ignored, and we're being uh, repressed by the, Pal by the Israelis. So um, we have very little to lose in, in this attack, and that's the reason for it. Mm -hmm. It's almost joke now, the two-state solution. Well, there is no two-state solution. It's dead on arrival. Um, the, the, the nations and the leaders that are talking about a two-state solution, by the way, it's no longer talked about in Israel at all. Uh, no Israeli politician endorses a two-state solution. Um, it's basically a, uh, a chimera. It's, it's, it's something that doesn't exist, will never exist. Israel doesn't support two states. It rejects it utterly. And when Biden talks about two states, Blinken talks about two states, anybody talks about two states is lying to themselves and lying to the world. The only viable option is a one-state solution. 
um, but uh, nobody who support, says they support two states is prepared to uh, talk about one state. So we're we're talking far into the future before any just or reasonable uh, arrangement happens here, and that just means that the violence will continue indefinitely. Israelis continue to be killed. Palestinians continue to be killed in, in much greater numbers than Israelis. And um, it's really, I hate to end on a, or, or, you know, have such a negative sort of cynical point of view on this, but uh, the longer we talk about two states, the longer the violence is going to go on. And I wanted to go back to U.S. policy. You were mentioning Biden. Um, I think our policy is horrible. I think our uh, sort of lockstep uh, support for Israel is prolonging the violence, and uh, it's shameful for the Democrats um, to be continuing with this mode, especially since pu uh, public opinion in the United States no longer supports uh, the, the Gaza invasion by Israel, and increasing numbers of American Jews are protesting against this, and non-Jews as well. And um, our, our, and also Biden is losing support. Uh, he, his approval rating went down 11 percent last month, mostly because of uh, objection to this position. And he's losing voters come uh, November 2024. He's going to have a tough race. He's already behind. Um, he's losing uh, voters like me and others who are disgusted, really, of U.S. policy. Trump people were complaining that uh, in the first tranche of uh, people who were released, it wasn't Americans first, those Americans held in Israel, which I thought was an interesting complaint. And there was a lot of uh, Trump would have gotten Americans freed first instead of just Israelis <laughs> or Palestinians. Uh, and it's all That's over the laughable. Internet. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's hard to put it in a question form, actually. <laughs> I can't put it in a question form. That Trump would make that claim because if um, he was president, they would never release Americans. <laughs> they hate Trump even more than they hate Biden, and they probably hate Biden. So um, that's typical of Trump's delusional uh, thinking. But the reason why the Americans aren't released is precisely because of our pro-Israel policy. What inducement do the Palestinians or Hamas have to release Americans when uh, the America is all in for Israel? If we were honest brokers, if we were balanced in our position, we could negotiate the release of Americans. But as it is, um, you know, we'll be lucky if they get them back at all. Oh, we could have dropped our bunker buster bombs on them, which would have killed the hostages. <laughs> we would have yeah, it's right. probably we. They used the bunker busters, and they have killed hostages. So we don't know exactly how that happened, but uh, you know, okay. it would be no, not a surprise if that was the um, result of what happened. I was sat in on a news conference the other day with uh, the Red Cross and all the different uh, aid organizations that would help inside of Gaza, and they were saying that there's no system in place to allow people to move back after all of this is over, which makes them fear that there's no plan to let them back. Ethnic cleansing is, is definitely a prospect here. The Israelis have already eliminated uh, Palestinian people who lived in northern Gaza, told them to go to southern Gaza. They're in the process of basically uprooting all the people in southern Gaza. So where does that leave them to go? They've, they've basically raised everything in, in, in Gaza, um, and 
and told people that they, uh, they're they going to presumably open the Rafah crossing, and that would be the only way for Palestinians to leave. But any Palestinian who leaves Gaza is not going to be allowed to come back. And the U.S. claim that they don't support, that they oppose the um, the, the uh, ethnic cleansing in northern Gaza and that they oppose reducing the territory of Gaza with a buffer zone, which is what Israel is doing, and uh, they oppose ethnic cleansing is ridiculous because that's precisely what Israel is going to do. It already has raised everything in northern Gaza. So us talking about how we will not support a buffer zone is is ridiculous. There's nothing there for the Palestinians to go back to. So it's it's a horrible situation as far as the Gazans are concerned. They're even Israelis are talking about resettling Gaza once all of the Palestinians are gone, sending settler Jews into Gaza and taking Gaza over for Israel. Um, that's what the prospect is here. Um, and and to talk in the way that the U.S. policymakers are is is to is just ignoring what is reality, and that's the tragedy really of this because people you know say we want this, we want two states, and they're ignoring what the reality is on the ground. You have to deal with reality if you want to have a viable policy, and we don't have one for that reason. Algeria was a department of France. The idea that they would break away from France was as ridiculous seeming as the idea that Israel couldn't survive as a state. And yet I'm getting a funny feeling that the state of Israel is a straw dog, bombs and army, or it's on its way out. I don't think Israel is on its way out, if that's what your question is. That it's going to collapse. That, yeah, my question, oh. I guess, is, uh, you know, no way this could happen, and boom, next thing you know... In spite of all the dysfunction internally, in spite of all of the pro-democracy demonstrations that they had before the Gaza War, uh, by the way, the Gaza War has um, destroyed the uh, protest movement, essentially, because every Israeli is rallying to the flag, and uh, all of the soldiers who claimed that they were not going to serve in the army because of the fascist government, um, guess what? They're all serving in the army. So there's a lot of internal cohesion in Israel, despite uh, sort of social dysfunction and prejudice and discrimination against Israeli-Palestinian citizens. So I don't think that there's any likelihood that it will disintegrate or, or whatever, but um, I think that Israel is a toxic entity in the region, and it's going to continue to be one of the leading causes of um, instability uh, in terms of geostrategic and military um, terms. So um, I, I uh, shudder to think about what could happen with the nuclear weapons it has, with this implacable hostility against Iran, uh, with Hezbollah and, and Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas being arrayed sort of as, as enemies. Um, but uh, the strength of the Israeli army really precludes being any serious threat uh, to Israel. So my, I'm, I'm very downbeat on, on the prospects for uh, any kind of stability or security in the Middle East. And unfortunately, I think Israel is going to continue to be uh, some kind of uh, entity that uh, you know the, the, the rest of the region is going to have to deal with and live with somehow. No South Africa thing where, like, through BDS and things like that, they just can't survive that way, and they have to open it up to Palestine.
if we have BDS and BDS continues to strengthen and people, um, you know, disengage uh, foreign entities, foreign uh, uh, grassroots disengage from Israel, I think that will increase the pressure on Israel. But until the United States, and this will take quite a while, until the United States backs away from Israel, until we can get progressive uh, members of Congress, senators, uh, members of the House like the squad elected, until we can sort of defeat the Israel lobby or at least weaken it, um, you know, the U.S., the only way in which Israel will change is if it's forced to, in terms of what happened in Bosnia, what happened in Serbia, um, those kinds of pressures uh, by by countries, by whole countries, against Israel, um, if there was an arms embargo imposed against Israel, that kind of force by global entities would would compel Israel to change and compel Israel to uh, create a state for all its citizens. But until the world, you know, has any kind of consensus about that, um, nothing is going to change really seriously. Change. Why this connection, I just last last, and I can't get over this, this connection to Israel, this love of a country that really, you know, that people are willing to go to these lengths to keep Israel going, you know, and to support it at every turn, that people are so angry everywhere you go. It's it's way beyond anything. I mean, the slightest criticism, the slightest question, and people, you know, supporters of Israel go nuts. I mean, it's really, like, scary, you know, when you're out there. What, what, what drives that? Cash. Money. Um, so, last uh, 2022, you had the Israel lobby with three major PACs spending 40 or 50 or 60 million dollars to prevent progressive Democratic primary candidates from winning primaries and winning uh, general elections. So, if you're willing, I mean, I've been doing research. There's 27 billionaires with a B in the United States who are spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to support the Israel lobby and the political um, sort of toxicity that the Israel lobby introduces to American uh, democracy. So with that kind of money, that will elect the kind of candidates that they want who march in lockstep with Israel. And again, uh, as I said about Israel and the force that's required to change it, um, we need to have uh, fun- funding reform uh, for Congress so that the PACs like this can't dominate whatever issue they are allied with. And it's, the Israel lobby, obviously, it's Israel, and it gets uh, the, the billions of dollars in weapons that this and the sub- supplemental congressional revolu- resolution provided $15 billion in a single shot of aid which is in addition to the $30 billion that Obama gave them over 10 years. So as long as those members of Congress are voting for that kind of, uh, I won't say the word, um, that kind of abominable um, funding that supports uh, weapons purchases, which are used, by the way, a lot of the weapons that are killing Palestinians in Gaza are American weapons, Uh, the missiles, the rockets, all of that. Uh, Iron Dome, they're all funded or or produced by the United States and used by Israel to kill Palestinians. So that's the kind of change that we need. We need democracy. We need progressive uh, members of Congress to be elected. 
And you've been listening to the news of Paul DiRienzo on the Progressive Radio Network. For more information, you can go to pauldirienzo.com. That's Paul, D-E-R-I-E-N-Z-O, one word, dot com. Thanks for listening.